KISU City Club is presented by the Idaho Humanities Council, enhancing the quality of life in Idaho by broadening public awareness, appreciation, and understanding of literature, history, philosophy, and other humanities disciplines. More details are on the web at idahohumanities.org. We have a wonderful opportunity today to hear from a woman who is widely regarded as the Dean of the Idaho Press Corps. Uh, Betsy Russell is familiar to so many of us through her uh, wonderful, insightful writings about Idaho government and politics, through her widely read, admired, and indeed popular blog, Eye on Boise, which she's been writing for, for, for about a dozen years, as a matter of fact. You all know her as the bureau chief, as the Boise bureau chief for the Spokesman Review, and she spends much of her time in Boise covering Idaho politicians, reporting on the most important stories that capture our attentions, often garnering headlines on, on page one uh, of newspapers. Betsy has been a longtime journalist, having worked for the Spokesman Review for 25 years. Uh, before that, uh, she was, in fact, an editor and reporter uh, for the Idaho Statesman. She comes to us as a person who loves to ski. Uh, she's an avid skier, a windsurfer. She's married with two grown children. Uh, but all of those resume items reflect, in fact, her commitment to education. She graduated from University of California, Berkeley, earned a master's degree at the Columbia Journalism School, widely regarded as the number one J school in the country. Uh, she is the recipient of numerous journalistic awards. You know her as well as president and founding member of the uh, Idaho, Idahoans for Openness in Government. Uh, she is also currently president of the Idaho Press Club. Uh, I've admired Betsy and her work for many, many years. On a personal note, let me say that it's been a privilege over the years to have done uh, numerous interviews uh, with Betsy, whether over the phone or in person. I've always found her to be meticulous, thoroughly professional. Her questions are always spot on, and her stories illuminate uh, the most important aspects of any given story. And so, uh, like the rest of you, I'm very much looking forward to hearing from her today. And in a slightly different way, it'll be fun for me in my role as moderator uh, to interview her with the aid of your questions. Let's give a warm City Club welcome to Betsy Russell. Thanks, David. And thank you to all of you for coming today. Uh, I actually was already planning to be here um, in Idaho Falls today because tonight, as part of IDOG, Idahoans for Openness in Government, um, I will be appearing at an open government workshop at Longfellow Elementary School at 6 p.m. along with Idaho Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. And it's open to the public, everyone is welcome, but if you'd like to come, please RSVP. You can go to the IDOG website at openidaho.org. And that session is both free and includes refreshments. 
iDog is a project that a good friend of mine, Dean Miller, and I um, co-founded back in 2004. And I think some of you know Dean, the former editor of the Idaho Falls Post-Register. Um, it's a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, in part simply because as a newspaper reporter, I can't do my job unless I have access to the documents and the processes and procedures and meetings of our government. And my job is to find those documents, find out that information, watch those processes, and report to the public so they know what's going on. And to me, that's really important because it's the public's right to know what the government is doing that ensures that our whole system works, that people can go to the polls and cast an informed vote. That's how we govern ourselves. If we don't know what the government is doing, well, then they're just doing it. But if we have access, if we know what's going on, we are empowered. So consider coming tonight, please. Now, I'm here today to talk about Idaho politics. And boy, we're just having a lot of politics these days, aren't we? <laughs> um, did everyone watch the debate last night? Oh my gosh. I, I liked what the uh, New York Times TV critic had to say about the three debates thus far. Debate number one, dying of excitement. Debate number two, we're all going to die. Debate number three, kill me already. <laughs> so normally debates here in Idaho for Idaho political races don't look like what we saw last night. Um, I understand there was a debate over in these parts just recently between the two candidates for the Idaho Supreme Court, and that it was civil and nothing like the um, histrionics, the talking over, the interrupting, and so on that we saw last night. But national politics have a way of coming home. I don't know if anyone saw the first district congressional debate, debate on KTVB last week. It only aired in Boise on KTVB, but you can see it by going to ktvb.com, clicking on their voter guide. And that was where first district Congressman Raul Labrador and his Democratic challenger James Piotrowski debated. And it appeared that perhaps Mr. Piotrowski has gone to the same school of debating as Donald Trump and Tim Kaine. And I don't know if anyone watched the vice presidential campaign or debate. I did watch it, I fell asleep halfway through. But, but I did note with some surprise that Hillary Clinton's running mate, Tim Kaine, seemed to be taking on the same debating style that Donald Trump had been exhibiting in his debates with Hillary Clinton in that he was very, very aggressive, interrupting and talking over both his opponent and the moderators. Um, we got to see that in an Idaho race <laughs> in the first district congressional debate, and it was very interesting. And Congressman Labrador reacted by calling his opponent a liar. It was a, you might say, very lively debate. So if, if you're interested in watching that, you can find it online. Um, in the second con congressional district, Mike Simpson and his challenger, Jennifer Martinez, have not debated, largely because she has not responded to invitations to debate. I think she's just a placeholder. I did run into her and asked her why she did not respond to the public TV invitation to debate. She said, oh, I just blew it. I missed the deadline. That was my fault. But you know, you don't have histrionics here in that race, right? In Mike Simpson's race. So there, even though most of the attention for this election is on the presidential race, there are substantial issues and important races here on the ballot in Idaho. And 
one measure that's, that's right up there, everybody in the state will be voting on it, is one that's not well understood and extremely obscure. Carol and I were talking about this. It's called HJR5. So this is a constitutional amendment, and we've seen some pretty strong op-ed pieces um, over the course of the last week or two um, from various major figures in Idaho politics on both sides of this issue. Um, Attorney General Lawrence Wasden has written a piece strongly opposing this measure. Um, Representative Tom Lurcher and Senator Jim Risch have written pieces strongly supporting it, as has House Speaker Scott Bedke. Um, Senator Dan Schmidt from North Idaho has come out with a piece opposing it. So what the heck is this, right? It's about administrative rules, and uh, in Idaho, when the legislature passes a bill, a state agency will develop administrative rules to implement it, to kind of fill in the details. Let's say the legislature says there can be a fee for something. The agency might set the amount of the fee. That's done under the Administrative Procedures Act. It's very involved. The agencies typically do hold public hearings. They go through an extensive process. In some cases, they engage in what's called negotiated rulemaking, where they bring all the interested parties to the table and hash out the rule in its final form. And then, all agency rules go back to the legislature, and the legislature has the opportunity to accept or reject them. They actually spend the, whole, the first three weeks of every legislative session now doing almost nothing but reviewing agency rules. Some of it is extremely tedious. Having been there, I can say that. Uh, often, nobody cares. Nobody shows up. But there are some rules that are controversial. And people come in and testify, and sometimes the legislature will reject one. It takes both houses of the legislature to reject an agency rule. So this doesn't happen in other states, and it doesn't happen at the federal level. It happens here in Idaho because Idaho passed a law setting up this process, and that, that law was upheld by the Idaho Supreme Court in a decision some years back. The legislature got this idea a couple years ago that it should protect that process by enshrining it in the Idaho Constitution. That way, if some future Idaho Supreme Court maybe changed its mind and said they shouldn't be doing this, they wouldn't have that option. So the legislature passed a constitutional amendment, HJR 2, and that passed unanimously in both houses of the legislature. It went on the ballot. We had a history in Idaho at that point of Whenever there is a complicated, obscure constitutional amendment on the ballot, it passes. Ten previous ones had on very obscure topics having to do with endowment investment reform and bond banking and this, that, and the other. Well, that one didn't pass. The voters rejected it. And the legislature's reaction was, well, they, they must not have understood it. So they rewrote it and they've put it back on the ballot now as HJR 5. Now this time, it didn't pass unanimously in both houses. There was one no vote in the Senate, three no votes in the House. And this, the legislators who objected said, you know, I thought this was a good idea to protect this ability for the legislative branch and not allow the governor to veto that process. But we already asked the voters and they said no. So why are we going back to them? But that was a small minority. And it did pass, and it is on the ballot. And so now it's up to all of you, as voters, to decide whether we should amend our Constitution to protect this process forever and make sure that the court could never say that it should change. 
Now, some people believe that it's actually the court's role to determine the boundaries of separation of powers between the executive, judicial, and legislative branch. The legislature believes that it's more accountable because they're elected every two years and people can go back to them. And you all get to decide. So the big question is, if HJR 5 passes, what changes? The answer is nothing. If it fails, what changes? Nothing. Because it would enshrine into the Constitution exactly what we have right now, the process that we have right now. So I don't think it'll cause a lot of fist fights, this issue. <laughs> but it's an important one, and it's one that are, is on our Idaho ballot, and, and all of us will need to decide and cast our votes. We also have the aforementioned Supreme Court race. We had four candidates run in the primary. Now we have two left in a runoff. Um, the top finisher from the primary was Robin Brody from Rupert, an um, attorney in private practice. And the, the second highest finisher was Kurt McKenzie, an eight-term state senator, a Republican from Nampa. And they have run different types of campaigns. Uh, Brody has run more of a traditional campaign for the Supreme Court, whereas McKenzie has, particularly during the primary, made a point of doing a lot of outreach specifically to Republicans, kind of a, a partisan pitch, the same as he would have run to run for the Senate. And so he drew, he had numerous endorsements from Republican legislators, none from Democrats. Brody was meticulous about um, having a booth at the Republican convention and at the Democratic convention. Two different approaches. It's a heavily Republican state. It's a nonpartisan position. One is not supposed to run as either a Republican or a Democrat when one runs for the Idaho Supreme Court. However, we have seen a campaign that was more partisan in nature succeed in the past when Justice Eisman was elected. So we'll find out how people view this race this time around. At the top of the ticket in Idaho this year is the Senate race, Senator Mike Crapo. Now, Senator Crapo has served already three six-year terms in the Senate, multiple terms in the House. Before that, he was in the State Senate. He is one of the most beloved and strongly supported Idaho politicians in history, based on his electoral record. In 2004, he was unopposed for re-election to the US Senate. That just doesn't happen. There wasn't anyone running against him except for a write-in. Little bit has changed, though. In 2012, something very, very unexpected. Senator Crapo was arrested on a DUI charge and convicted. Um, he apologized. He did what was required um, legally and says that he hasn't had a drink since. And he, in his words, put his nose to the grindstone. He launched a series of town hall meetings across the state that went to every single incorporated city in Idaho. 200 town hall meetings in two years. No one's ever done that before. And at each of those, and I, I guess the, the attendance ranged anywhere from two people to 200, something like that, depending on the town. Some of them are pretty small towns that are incorporated in Idaho. He visited with people and took their questions. And if they had problems with agencies or the federal government, he got his staffers in touch with them. He worked on his constituent service. I think he formed a lot of goodwill in that process. And those were not campaign events. Those were official events. Um, and so now he has a Democratic challenger, Jerry Sturgill, who is um, running a, 
a determined campaign, but seriously underfunded compared to Senator Crapo's resources. Senator Crapo has more than $5 million in his campaign war chest. Um, Jerry Sturgill has actually raised quite a bit of money for a first-time candidate from the minority party. He's raised over half a million dollars, with about half of that coming out of his own pocket as a loan. But you've seen Senator Crapo's ads on TV. You've seen him around. It seems highly unlikely that this sitting senator will be taken out in this race. On the other hand, Senator Crapo has said that he's approaching it as a full-blown uh, campaign, a contest, and he's trying to make his case um, to the voters why he should be elected. And as part of my own work, my reporting work looking at this, I went back over his legislative record for the last six years. And it was really interesting to find out exactly what he's been doing legislatively, because he's been doing a lot. And he hasn't been doing a lot of boasting about it. Senator Crapo is often the lead sponsor of major bipartisan legislation, working with prominent Democrats um, to get things like the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, or the Indian Trust Asset Reform Bill passed, or the Cancer Cluster Bill. So he has an interesting and very substantive legislative record. Um, his challenger, Jerry Sturgill, would say that he disagrees with it. So, so we've got a race. We've got something going there. Um, I spoke briefly about the first district congressional race and the second district congressional race. Um, the other thing on the ballot this time around is every single seat in the state legislature. So that's 105 seats, right? That should be a lot of stuff. Only, as you know, in this part of the state, many of those people are running unopposed. There just aren't even contests at all. Or the contest was in the primary. In many parts of Idaho, because our legislature is so heavily Republican, the outcome is determined in the Republican primary. And then they're either unopposed in the general or there is a very lopsided result, and in most cases, the Republican wins. However, the Republicans are not taking anything for granted in this year's legislative election. The state party has mobilized field workers out to a number of districts that are seen as swing districts. Those in, um, mostly are not over here, <laughs> uh, although it does include District 26, um, where uh, Steve Miller is seeking another term after last term winning by just 126 votes against a challenge from Dick Fosbury, who of course was a very famous Olympian. Um, and there's an open seat because Donna Pence has retired. But the other districts that the Republicans have targeted include District 15 in Boise, which is Representative Lynn Luker and I'm, yeah, and <laughs> Senator Fred Martin, Representative Patrick McDonald. And then up in north central Idaho, John Rushi's seat, he's the House Minority Leader. He has a very persistent and active challenger in Mike Kingsley. And in the last election two years ago, Rushi beat Kingsley by only 48 votes. And he's running again. Also in that district, um, a Democratic representative, Dan Rudolph, has retired. And the Republican representative who previously held that seat, Thera Stevenson, is trying to make a comeback, running for that same seat again. Two years ago, she lost to Rudolph by 26 votes. These are some close races. So when anyone says they, they don't vote because they don't think their vote counts, boy, if they're in those districts, it really does. Um, I'm also following North Idaho races, so I've done some reporting on District 1. District 1 is way the heck up north. Um, up to the Canadian border. And in that district, there have, has been change over the years. 
it used to have Democratic representatives. Then it had moderate Republican representatives. Two years ago, two of both House seats in that district were run by basic or were won by Tea Party conservatives. And this year the senator from that district, Senator Sean Keogh, had a very strong challenge in the primary from a Tea Party conservative. She didn't even flinch. She won big time. And now those two uh, Tea Party conservatives, Representatives Heather Scott and Sage Dixon, have strong Democratic challengers. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens, which way that district is moving. There's also, I think, a really interesting race in Kootenai County. Coeur d'Alene, another district that used to be represented by Democrats traditionally. But since George Saylor retired, it's been all Republicans in that district. Well, this year, Representative Kathy Sims, a very conservative Democrat, lost in the primary to a first-time candidate, a challenger by the name of Paul Amidar, who is a young, up-and-coming Republican, um, very well-educated, works for the university, is relatively new to the community. Now, Paul Amador is facing a Democrat in the general election, Tom Hearn, who has been in the community forever, is a current elected member of the school board, is very active in the community, very well-known and well-respected. That's going to be a fight, and it's possible that the Democrats could pick up a seat. I, I have a favorite quote from a legislator, and I apologize to those of you who've already heard it. Um, it's from a legislator who is no longer with us, who's from North Idaho. And I remember him telling me, I don't always make the brightest statements in the legislature, but I believe that I am representative of my district. <laughs> These are our representatives. It matters who we send, and everyone should vote. Just another word about the, uh, the next big race in Idaho, there's a lot of talk already about the 2018 governor's race. And we have two announced candidates already, both of them Republicans. Russ Fulcher, who unsuccessfully challenged Governor Otter in the Republican primary two years ago, has already announced he's running in 2018. And Governor Otter has already announced he won't run for a fourth term. Brad Little, our current lieutenant governor, has already announced that he is running. We have not yet heard any Democrats announce. It's actually pretty early for anyone to announce, but there is a heck of a lot of speculation about whether First District Representative Raul Labrador will run and whether Attorney General Lawrence Wasden will run. If one or the other or both of them run, that's going to be a heck of a, a run, a, a campaign. It'll, it'll give me a whole lot to write about, and I like that. So I think I'm ready to take your questions. So thank you very much. Let's um, thank you, Kelly. Let's let's start off with where you finished about the speculation involving the 2018 gubernatorial race. <clears throat> A number of people in the audience have asked about your expectation whether Lawrence Wasden will jump in, and you, you said there's a lot of speculation. Any inside baseball to share with us on that? Boy, I don't know if he will or not. He has not yet said, but you know what? 
If you go to the iDog session this evening, he will be speaking. <laughs> there you go. So that's an encouragement to turn out. Uh, as, a, as a follow-up to that, Betsy, uh, some wonder whether or not the Republicans would be willing to change their policy, now existing, of a closed primary, uh, given that a couple of the candidates, notably Lieutenant Governor Brad Little, is of a more moderate stripe. And of course, um, primaries, as we all know, turn out hardliners, thus putting Lieutenant Governor Brad Little at a bit of a disadvantage, except for the fact there could be five or six candidates. Any thoughts on, on what the Republicans might do with respect to the closed primary issue? Well, I think the fact that Brad Little is a more moderate Republican is a reason why the Republican Party would choose not to change their closed primary, because the closed primary is something that was advocated for very strongly by pretty much the, the right-wing end of the Republican Party. I mean, among the opponents of the, of the closed primary is current Governor Butch Otter. They did that over his objections. And the aim, really, was to purify or purge the party and to give um, the the more partisan, more conservative participants within the party more of a say. So why would they want to make it easier for mm -hmm. Brad Little? Good question. So thank you. On that note of partisan rivalries within government, a subject that you write a lot about, uh, what would be uh, your explanation as to why the representation of the Democratic Party has declined within the confines of Idaho government so dramatically? over these past 20 years or so? That's a really good question. And, and apparently the Democrats don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, how low can you go? They, currently, the, the Republicans control every single statewide office and 80% of the seats in the legislature. And there have been signs over the years that, oh, it's gonna change, and then it doesn't. Um, I remember when, when it was really starting to skew this direction, there were a lot of theories that with all of the influx of new people into the state, Idaho was going to moderate, and we would have a more balanced um, political spectrum across the state, because more people would come in, there would be more Democrats, and so on. It turned out that all those people who were coming in from elsewhere were coming in apparently because they wanted to be around other Republicans. And, <laughs> and the newcomers to Idaho tended to be very conservative. Um, just as conservative as those who were already dominating the elections that were here and actually increasing that dominance. And so the growth did not bring the moderation that we expected. Idaho actually became more conservative. Uh, there has been the thought for years that, you know, the pendulum swings and it's already swung, so at some point it should swing back. Um, it really wasn't that long ago that we had 24 years of a Democratic governor in this state. But since then, you know, the Democrats haven't made much in the way of gains. Perhaps what we need is a charismatic Democrat at the top of the ticket, another Cecil Andrus. That's what will bring the Democrats back. Betsy, what's your sense of the role of big money and its potential influence on Idaho elections? Well, that's an interesting question. The, the big money in Idaho doesn't have to be that big. And that's especially when you think about legislative elections. Not that much money actually gets spent in an Idaho legislative election. We have 35 legislative districts, and the state is divided up into all those districts. And each of those districts, I mean, 
what you spend money on is when you're campaigning in one of these districts might be yard signs, mailers, maybe some radio ads. It's not a question of million dollar TV campaigns, that kind of thing. So a little bit of spending without really meeting what most people would think is the definition of big money can make a big difference, particularly if it's done in the dirty tricks type of way. And we have seen many instances of that in Idaho in the past where perhaps a flyer goes out right before the election that says something scurrilous about a candidate, perhaps something that's not true at all, but there is not enough time to correct the record um, and the candidate loses. Uh, we have had things like that happen. Um, I do think that there are an increasing number of groups that are organizing and, and trying to do independent campaigns. Um, you know, there are the usual suspects, the business groups that have been here, and now the, um, this election, there's a new Democratic group that's organized and, and raised some money. And they're all trying to counter each other. Um, but really, the burden is on the voter. And if the only thing you know about a candidate before you go to vote is based on a screed that you received in the mail, you as a voter might not have done your job. Now, we in the media have a job to do, too. And you'll find that your local media is working very hard to tell you who are these people who are running? Who are these people who are on the ballot? What are they all about? And individual citizens can go to the candidates' websites. Nearly every candidate has a website now and find out, look them up, see what they're all about, Google them for heaven's sakes. But yeah, money can make a difference and it can make a difference in bad ways. And, and the only way to counter that is informed citizens. Betsy, a couple of your listeners have indicated that they've attended some of uh, Senator Mike Crapo's town hall meetings, but were denied the opportunity to ask quote unquote hard questions. Uh, can you explain to us what might be the difference between a taxpayer funded town hall meeting and a campaign meeting? Oh, that's interesting. I, unfortunately, I didn't make it to any of Senator Crapo's town hall meetings, and I sure wish I had, because when I went to write this story about him, and I was interviewing him, and I was looking back over the record of all the ones he's held, I thought, why the heck didn't I go to one of those and see what it was like? But I did happen to go to one of Representative Labrador's town hall meetings. And he did kind of a similar thing just during this past summer break. He held 19, he called the mini town hall meetings around the district, particularly trying to go to small towns and smaller venues and have some smaller gatherings with a lot of give and take. And so I went to one of those in Eagle at a cafe. And there were two to three times as many people as he had expected. Um, it was so crowded they had to move outside and they filled up the entire patio and there were people standing up. But he took questions from anybody who wanted to ask him, including a guy who was kind of a heckler. And I was actually pretty impressed. And I did interview people who had gone to um, some of Senator Crapo's meetings. Um, we sent a photographer to one because the last few were up north, which was great for our newspaper, for our coverage, but I was in Boise, so I couldn't go. But our photographer went and she took, some, took down some names and uh, contact information for me, and I called up some people who were there, including one who said he totally disagreed with Senator Crapo on absolutely everything. He thought he was a typical right-winger. What he He's a Bernie Sanders supporter who really just wants to tax the rich. But he did get to ask his question. And he didn't like the senator's answer, but he treated him like a gentleman, and, and he let him ask his question. So that was the report I had gotten. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Uh, let's turn to the national presidential election for a second and the role of the press. In recent weeks, as you know, uh, Donald Trump has been accusing the press of engaging in a biased 
effort to discredit him, and as a consequence, great scrutiny has been brought to bear upon the role of the press in this issue. As a journalist, what are your thoughts about that accusation and your evaluation of how the press has covered this presidential campaign? You only have an hour to answer this question. <laughs> I, you know, I'm no expert on the national presidential campaign. I, all I know is what I see on TV and read in the newspapers. Uh, but I think that a very good example of the role of the media in that campaign could be seen in last night's debate in the person of Chris Wallace. Um, anyone who watched that debate, despite all the crazy stuff going on, saw a journalist who happens to work for Fox News trying to keep things fair, trying to ask fair questions, keep the debate on topic, and not show favor to either side. And I actually think that's what pretty much all journalists are trying to do. We are trying to tell people what's going on. Very few journalists have an agenda beyond that. That's really what we're all about. I think that the news media is a mirror of our society. And right now in our politics, there are some really awful things <laughs> being said and done. And so when you read the media coverage of that, you're gonna read some really awful things. That's not because the media decided to make it awful. We are reflecting exactly what we're seeing in our political climate. And I don't think the media is out to get one candidate or the other. Um, I don't buy that. I know that's not why I went into this business. And I don't know any journalists who you know, are living a secret double life <laughs> as uh, undercover political operatives who are pretending to be journalists. My, they could make a lot more money doing a whole lot of other things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Betsy, what would your view be on, on how the role of the press in America has evolved, say, pre-Watergate days to the current period? Has, have you seen a greater uh, emphasis on the role of investigation by the press? And what's your view of that? Okay, I'm not quite that old. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you read about it in the history right, books, right? right? That's it. The, yeah. so, so Watergate was, for many journalists, the you know, the, the call about how great investigative journalism can be. And interest in investigative journalism ballooned. And investigative journalism really expanded to the point that part of every reporter's job day in and day out is now investigative journalism. We don't just get a press release and report what it says. We don't just interview someone and report what they said. We also fact check. We look for the documents. We really try to get to the truth. And I think that is still very much behind the drive of what journalists do in our society. Now, unfortunately, what's happened to the newspaper industry in the last decade and a half has been that, that it's contracted in a very, very dramatic way because of the change in our media landscape and the internet. So at my newspaper, we've had a ton of layoffs. We have half the staff that we had 15 years ago. And you're seeing that same thing at every newspaper in the country. You can see that the papers have shrunk. They have fewer people working. Those same people are still trying to do the job that everyone did before. But it's harder to do when there are fewer of us. And so journalists are pressed for time. And we're, we're pressed for resources. And we still want to do all the fact checking. And we still want to find all the documents. But we're also on deadline. And so we're still trying very, very hard to do you know, the same job that the Watergate reporters did, but it's very difficult to do. 
What, what's your view on the point that more and more Americans are deriving their information not from the product of professionally trained journalists, but from bloggers and others on social media? Does that trouble you? Well, as a blogger, you know, <laughs> in that sense, no. Um, but I think that a lot of the information that people are finding, the news that they're getting from social media, actually originates with journalists, with people like me, with articles in newspapers and, and articles, uh, stories on the TV news. And then that gets shared and passed around. And you know, it's like the game of telephone. You tell a story to someone who tells it to someone who tells it to someone, and by the time you get to the end, the story may have changed a little. It's, it may not be as credible as it was originally. When you turn to a trusted news source, you know what you're getting. You know that there are standards. You know, you hope, you can trust that information. When it comes to from you know just anybody out in the ether, you know it may or may not be true, and and that's kind of scary. It it puts a lot more burden on the consumer of the news to judge the credibility of their news source, which Americans didn't used to have to do. We would just turn on the TV or pick up the newspaper. We all read the same one, and we we shaped our ideas. All of us from the same information and reach different conclusions. Now people seek out sources of information that agree with their viewpoint, and then they're never challenged. And so they don't ever learn anything they don't already know. Well, how do you evolve? How do you make decisions? I, the mass media, the newspaper, the TV news, there's value in that. I, I, I hope it doesn't go away. It's shrinking. Uh, from your perspective as a reporter here in Idaho for 25 years or so, uh, do you believe that you have adequate access to the state's leaders? Are there, are there some that would deny you access when you need it? What's been your overall experience? My overall experience has been really good. And that's one good thing about us being a small state. For the most part, you can get access to anybody in Idaho, not just as a reporter, just as a citizen. I mean, if you want to talk to your legislator, you can just call them up or maybe run into them in the aisle at the grocery store. And if you want to talk to the governor, you can probably get in to talk to the governor. If you want to um, talk to the attorney general, you can contact his public information officer and you can get access to that office. It, I think that, that we're really, really fortunate to still have that kind of access to our officials. Now, of course, it varies by personality. Um, some of our leaders are more forthcoming than others, um, and the personalities can come into play with journalists too, I suppose. There is, there is one member of our congressional delegation who currently isn't granting me interviews, to my great dismay, um, so that I have to write, um, Representative Labrador declined to comment for this article based on objections to an article that this newspaper published about his legislative record in 2014. <laughs> but for the most part, I think we do have really good access. And part of that is not just those people at, at the top in the office. Things like, things as basic as the Idaho legislature's website. It is excellent. If you wanna look up a bill, if you wanna find a vote, if you want to see an agenda, it's just all right there online. It didn't used to be like that. People all over the state have access to that at their fingertips, plus 
through Idaho Public Television, every single floor session, every single committee meeting is either audio or video streamed online, and then it's archived, and you can go back and watch them. If you're really wondering what the how could they have made that decision on that issue, you can go back and watch the debate. That's pretty cool. It is. Thank you. So let's turn to one of the great controversies before the Idaho legislature, one that occupies the attention of all Idahoans. What will the legislature do this term, this session, on the issue of Medicaid expansion? I think that they will do something this year. You know, they've, they've put it off year after year. Um, and it's really come down to a difference between the House and the Senate. I think what we saw at the end of the last session was that the Senate was ready to take action. The House was not quite there. And the House Republican leadership came up with this plan to have another interim committee and to essentially put it off for one more session. But I think really with a commitment that there will be a bill this year. There will be some kind of action on something about some form of Medicaid expansion. Something to address the 78,000 people in Idaho who currently do not qualify for Medicaid because almost no one in Idaho qualifies for Medicaid. And also don't make enough money to qualify for subsidized health insurance through the state insurance exchange, which has otherwise been remarkably successful. Unlike other states where they're down to only one insurance company offering plans on their exchange, our, our exchange has many uh, insurance company is offering plans in every county in the state. It's signed up record numbers of people. Our numbers of uninsured Idahoans are going down. The exchange is very successful unless you don't make enough money to get into it. Thank you. A programming note here for our listeners on radio and for those of you in the audience. The Idaho Falls City Club will, on December 16th, host a program on the issue of Medicaid expansion featuring Dr. Ken Krell and Representative Tom Lurcher. So mark that on your calendars, December 16. On this question, Betsy, about um, the future of journalism, uh, we have a, have a student who wonders, what advice would you give to an aspiring journalist? Oh, that's such a tough question. You know, if, if you really want to be a journalist, then you ought to do it. And you ought to do it because you want to do it and because you think it's an important public service. But it is not a secure way to earn a living anymore. It just isn't. I know any number of young journalists who have you know, studied hard, gotten into the, the gig and, and gotten their first job, and within a year or two they're laid off. And it happens a lot. And some of them bounce back and they get another job and it happens again. Um, there are people at my paper who have been laid off two or three times and come back. That is very, very tough. Um, so when you think about what you want to do to earn your living and support your family, you know, that's a very real concern. On the other hand, I've never left journalism. I haven't found anything I wanted to do more, even though, of course, as I mentioned earlier, I probably could have made a lot more money. <laughs> it's, it's really a calling. And so for those who feel called to do this, they should do it, and do it as well as they possibly can. And on that, just share with us your biography on that point for a second, if you will. What drew you to journalism? When I was in the eighth grade, <laughs> I had a junior high school journalism teacher who was just so good and so inspiring. And we put together this little 
junior high school newspaper that won national awards. And it was so much fun and so exciting. And I found that I really enjoyed, with my best friend, who was my co-editor, going and interviewing people and finding out all the information about a story and writing it up and getting it out to everyone. Um, I, I drank my first cup of coffee. It was so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I edited my high school newspaper and I started working for my local newspaper, the Woodland Daily Democrat, while I was still in high school. And that was incredibly exciting and really fun. And, and I did things that I guess were considered grunt work, but at the time I thought just were very cool. Like I got to do the man on the street interviews where you take a picture of someone and ask them all the same question and write it up. I wrote weddings where I described, learned how to spell all these different types of flowers and how to describe the different fabrics in the bride's dress. I did anything they would let me write. And I, I just loved it. And when I was getting ready to go off to college, I talked to the city editor of the Daily Democrat and he said, don't study journalism. You can learn everything you need to know right here in the newsroom. Study something else so you'll have something to write about and you'll know about something. <laughs> so I took his advice and I majored in political science. And then I worked as a reporter for two years. Then I went back to journalism school <laughs> because I discovered it wouldn't hurt to also learn something about the craft. And I do think that Columbia made me a better journalist, gave me some techniques that, that I could use to do my job better. Um, and I haven't looked back. Thank you. Uh, back to the gubernatorial race in 2018 for a second. With a crowded field, do you see an opportunity for a female candidate uh, to work her way into that race? And if not, why do we have so few females in Idaho competing for the highest offices in the state? Boy, that's a really good question. And we have had female members of Congress from Idaho, but we have not had a female governor. We have not had a female lieutenant governor. Um, the one statewide office that traditionally over the years was many times held by a female is now held by a male, and that's our state treasurer, Ron Crane. Um, we do, although we do have a female state superintendent of schools in Sherry Ibarra. Um, I think, I, you know, we have a fair number of women in the legislature, and so I, at this point, I think it's a matter of personality and the places where people are in their careers. I don't think there's anything right now that would prevent a good and qualified female candidate from running for governor and winning. It's all a matter of who they are, what their record is, and who they're running against. And we just haven't seen one step forward yet, but I don't think that means that we won't. I'm sure that it will happen. Here's a series of questions for short answers for you. Uh, can you explain the so-called bed key rule and what we might be able to do to inspire a more bipartisan cooperation in the legislature? Okay, so the so-called bed key rule, which, by the way, House Speaker Scott Bedkey does not call the bed key rule, but, <laughs> but observers do, um, is it's also been described as the Hastert rule from the U.S. House. It's the idea that in order for the majority to move forward with something, a majority of the majority should support it, rather than have a minority of the majority support it and have to join with members of the other party in order to get it passed. Um, I'm not convinced that Scott Begge really holds that near and dear to his heart, but he did have to fight to be elected Speaker of the House, and he has to keep his caucus happy, and his caucus is quite divided. Because Republicans control so many seats, 
there's a, a broad spectrum of beliefs in there. And there are people who strongly disagree with each other within that caucus. So in order for him to hold his caucus together and remain as speaker, he's got to somehow bring them all together and make enough of them happy to keep electing him as speaker. So that's the only explanation I can come up with for the Bedkey rule. We don't have very many Democrats. Um, when there were more, it was easier to see how coalitions could form with, say, moderate Republicans and Democrats than it is now, when there are so many Republicans and so few Democrats. Betsy, what's your view on the, on the new rules for uh, putting a, an initiative on the ballot? Uh, as you know now, it's, it's, uh, we require 6% uh, in 18 districts plus 6% in the entire state, as opposed to the old uh, practice, which was 6% of registered voters across the entire state. Much more difficult, isn't it, to put an initiative on the ballot? What's your view on that, and, and what precipitated uh, this change? Well, remember that in 2012, we had a historic event occur. The so-called Luna laws, the um, school reform laws that then Superintendent Tom Luna had championed, along with Governor Otter, were soundly rejected by the voters in three referenda. That had not happened since the 1930s. It, it just isn't something that typically happens. And the legislature, the legislators involved will tell you that's not why they changed the rules after that, to make it so much harder to put an initiative or a referendum on the ballot, to qualify for the ballot. But clearly that was why they did it, because they went to great effort to pass these laws and the voters rejected them. And now that it's harder for that to happen. And the, this is not the first time this legislature has tried to do that. A number of years ago they passed some even more far-reaching restrictions and they were overturned in court as unconstitutional. The legislature jealously guards its power and its authority in Idaho. I don't know why, but they really do. I mean, it goes back to the HJR 5 issue, where they are concerned about their power with regard, in relation to the other branches of government. It goes to the local option tax issue that we have seen for years and years and years in Idaho. Our cities and counties and other local governments have very, very few options to raise revenues at the local level because the legislature has held for itself, reserved for itself, the ability to decide how taxes are raised. And so essentially, they're guarding their own power at the expense of other branches of government, other levels of government, um, and even citizen government through the initiative and referendum. Um, I mean, I guess it would be natural that people in power want to consolidate that power. But it does seem like there's probably room in Idaho for everybody to have a little power. There aren't that many of us. <laughs> Thank you. Here's a, here's a speculative question for you. What are the odds that Idaho's public lands might be sold off to private hands? I think it's pretty darn unlikely. Um, at this point, the, the movement to try to transfer federal lands to the states and set up the possibility of them then being sold off to private interests is being spearheaded by a group from Utah that has framed it as a legal fight that pretty much every legal authority that's looked at it has said, no, that wouldn't win. It, it's, it's a failed legal argument. It's, it's incredibly unlikely to succeed really only Congress could decide to give up 
federal lands and transfer ownership of federal lands to the states, which would then set up the possibility that states could sell them off. Now, there are a lot of intermediate steps toward increased state management or input into the management of federal lands within state borders. And that's what we're really seeing a lot more debate about. But this philosophical question about transferring the interest in lands and possibly setting the stage for selling them off has a whole lot of people up in arms on both sides. There are those who are strongly in favor of that, like the two uh, Tea Party representatives from North Idaho who I mentioned in District 1. That's a major plank of their platform. They support federal lands transfer. And there are those who are just vehemently opposed to that, in part because Idaho is a, a state that has so much public land, and so much of our culture relates to using that public land, having access for hunting or fishing or hiking or recreation or snowmobiling or whatever, or even just knowing that it's there, that it's creating the clean water that flows into town or that it, it harbors the wildlife. Uh, it's such an unpopular idea in this state, despite having a, a small core group of adherents, that it's hard for me to imagine it ever happening. It would have to happen as, I think, as a result of some kind of national or outside action. And at this point, I think that's highly unlikely. Here's a fun question for you. Idaho is known as one of the reddest of red states, even more red perhaps than Utah now, which may in fact lean toward Hillary Clinton in the November election. Uh, given the speculation that the GOP uh, may collapse into chaos or suffer great pains uh, if Donald Trump uh, goes down in defeat in a big way, how might that affect the Idaho Republican Party? Is it is so closely tied to the national GOP, or is the Idaho Republican Party sufficiently independent that it will not affect the Idaho, uh, Idaho GP, GOP? You know, that's a really good question. If you look back at the Idaho Republican presidential primary, Donald Trump didn't win it. <laughs> he only got 28%. Ted Cruz got 45%. He was the winner. So the Idaho Republican Party actually didn't, wasn't a, a Donald Trump party to begin with. Now, the party has, in, in many ways, closed ranks around its nominee, um, with many of our most prominent politicians saying things like, they find him disgusting, but they're going to vote for him anyway. The, uh, that doesn't seem like that's the basis of the party moving forward, that, oh, we're all going to be disgusting. I, I just don't see that. <laughs> um, and I think that, that just as Idaho Democrats have always been, in many ways, very different from the National Democratic Party, I think Idaho Republicans are quite different from the National Republican Party. You maybe wouldn't see that much evidence of it right now when the party is trained so very hard to close ranks and see it through to the end in, in a closely fought presidential election. But just because Donald Trump loses to Hillary Clinton, I don't think every Idaho Republican is going to go re-register as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. We're just about out of time, Betsy. Time for a couple more questions. You write a great deal about state government. That's your expertise. Do you have many concerns about local government? Do you write many stories about local government here in Idaho? 
I write some stories about local government, not as many as I do about state, mainly because my newspaper, of course, is located up north, and so the lo local governments that my readers are concerned about are 400 miles away <laughs> from where I'm working in the city of Boise, and I do live in Boise year-round. But local government is really important in Idaho, and I find very interesting the interplay between local and state government and the tensions that we see there. And, you know, Resources are limited in Idaho. It does seem like there's got to be a way for people at all different levels of government to share a little and make this thing work. One last question. What do you believe is the most difficult, the most demanding part of your job covering Idaho government and politics? I guess I'd say probably not enough coffee. <laughs> That's because you became a hard drinker in eighth grade, right? <laughs> that must be it. Bessie, we want to thank you so much for this wonderful talk, very illuminating. Thanks for joining us here at the Idaho Falls City thank Club. The Idaho Falls City Club on KISU is supported by the Idaho Humanities Council, promoting good citizenship through civil discourse, civic engagement, and reflection on the public good. More information is online at idahohumanities.org.